Bible, would you turn with me please to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to Ephesus. <clears throat> For those of you who are visiting here today, either because of the child dedication or you just happen to turn up at church here this day, then welcome. And we have been in a series working our way through the book of Ephesians. Um, and so we find ourselves this morning in the second half of chapter 4, <coughs> uh, verses 17 to 32, is where I'm going to read from. I'm reading from the NIV. And this comes into that part of the letter <coughs> where Paul, having taught all of the doctrinal or theological truths, is now applying those to how does it work its way out? What are the implications of these truths in our lives? And so this passage is as indeed the remaining chapters are, very practical in nature. <clears throat> Living as children of light, the NIV heading is. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. Amen. This is God's word given for our instruction, for our equipping, and for our transformation. The chapter divisions are not part of the original text, and so that theme will continue into the front half of chapter 5. Paul will go on, but we will barely have enough time to get through this verses this morning. So I've been off all this week. I've had a thing, I don't know what to call it, I guess it's the flu, but it wasn't in my head, it was in my body, so I get hots and cold sweats and incredibly uh, lethargic and tired and so I started to prepare this uh, very late in the week and I want to thank uh, David Parts's David and David. We have to come up with a name. 
so far, somebody has given me this suggestion. So now, you've got a yellow card, you can write on it, and you think, this is better, let's call him this. <clears throat> Pastor D.D., David Daniels, and Pastor Butters. <laughs> now, well, it could be D.B. I don't want to call them one and two. They'll be, they'll be fighting perpetually about who wants to be number one. But they have been a great assistance and a great relief to me this week because uh, I've obviously uh, had to cancel a whole lot of appointments and things and they've picked up the slack and David's stood up and he's doing the uh, message tonight so I'm grateful for that. David Daniels has been in there batting and swinging away and involved in things. Continue to pray for those guys. It is a great help that they are here, a great relief. Um, but so they've been here for a couple of weeks. They're sort of fitting in and they're awaiting my instructions about what they need specifically to be doing. So that'll happen for them this week. Um, so if you have any suggestions on what we're going to call them besides their Christian names, David, then please let me know. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that we are part of your family. And specifically, Lord, thanks for making us part of this church family. We thank you for the many wonderful gifts and resources that you've bestowed upon this church. Help us, Father, to be wise stewards, to use the resources that you've entrusted to us according to your purposes. Lord, you have given us a lot in order that we might give a lot. So direct us and guide us. Shape us this morning by your word. Help us, Lord, to work through the text. And most of all, we ask that you might be pleased to speak to each one of us, for truth to stand out, that we might have uh, things that we can work on in our lives, that we might become more like the Lord Jesus, because that's what we desire. We ask this in his name. And everyone said? Chapter 4, the Apostle Paul David Daniels taught us this last week. Um, that uh, because we are um, God's people, we are to be united, we are to be one people, and we are to work hard at keeping the unity, of keeping in relationships in our networks there. And he taught us about that. And this morning, this passage goes on. The Apostle Paul talks about um, we are not only one people, but we are specifically God's people. And because we are the people who belong to God, we are to reflect him. So this morning is more about purity. If the last week was about unity, then this week is about purity. Um, and it's easy to see this division in the text. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, I urge you then to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. This is how we ought to live, as one people. Verse 17, So then I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You used to live this way? Well, abandon it, um, jettison that life. Um, and if you've come to know Jesus, then you've actually made the decision to do that. But that which began the Christian life must also continue in the Christian life. And the Apostle Paul gives us some handles on how to do that. That's basically the outline of the text. Live worthy of the calling of what God has been at work in our life. And there are some negatives. There are some things that we are not to do. So, if the Apostle Paul is saying to us that we are not to live like the Gentiles do, like those who don't know Jesus, and he describes them in what can appear to be reasonably harsh terms. 
because he describes them as being futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, separated from God. There's a spiritual ignorance, which is due to the hardening of their hearts. They've lost sensitivity to when they're doing things wrong. And in fact, they've given themselves over to it. It's a pretty sweeping statement, isn't it? And if we pause and think about it, reflect on that maybe just for a few minutes. What makes followers of the Lord Jesus different to those who are not following the Lord Jesus? And the Apostle Paul certainly comes up with some guidelines in this passage. But let's just think about it for ourselves just for a second. When I became a Christian, which is 30 plus years ago now, the church was more defined by outward behaviour than what this passage, in fact, would define us as. For instance, what differentiates a Christian from a non-Christian? What would you think? Here is a list. Christians don't smoke, drink, swear, get tattoos. They don't joke about sex. They don't have sex. Um. They do nice things. They serve others. They don't work on Sundays. They don't play sport on Sundays. Um, And they certainly don't indulge in pornography or gambling or going to R-rated movies. That's how we would define the Christian community. Is that correct? No, it's not correct, but is that how we would define it? Because the reality is you can be a Christian and be involved in many of those things, can't you? And you probably know Christians who are. So it's not that sort of behaviour that makes us distinct from non-Christians. In fact, surveys that have been done over the years, Leadership Magazine back in the 80s and they repeated it in the 90s, and there's a certain question mark about it, but it's rather discouraging to realise that the church community, those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus, not just those who attend church, but those who at least say, uh, I believe that he is God, I believe in Jesus. When you do moral surveys and ask anonymous questions on those sorts of issues, the differences between professing believers and those who are unbelievers is minimal. In terms of the TV programs they watch or the movies they attend or the behaviour they're engaged in and so on. So while those behaviours may have, certainly last century, in the earlier parts of last century, been the focus, here I think is the truth of the situation. Cheering the Lord Jesus you will become more hungry for God. You'll have a desire to want to worship him, to obey him. You will be more prayerful. You'll be more accepting of his word and submitting to him and trusting him. That defines a significant difference because unbelievers are not like that. You'll find yourself, I think, increasingly humbled where you'll become less focused on yourself and more focused on others. You'll be gentle towards others, more patient with people, more forgiving of others, honest with them, serving others. Somebody once gave the acrostic as joy. Jesus first, others second, yourself last. That's not a bad summary. So now, if I am correct in saying that's what I think is going to distinguish the followers of Jesus from those who are not following Jesus, you can gauge, well, where am I going on this? Where am I up to? How mature am I? Because I may not be humble, I may not be gentle or patient or forgiving. I may still be working on that, sure. 
when the Lord Jesus saves us and we become his follower, we are not instantly transformed. We are instantly saved and forgiven. But the process of transformation is that. It's a journey. It's a process. And we find ourselves at different levels of maturity in that process. And that they're the sorts of qualities that we ought to be, if you like, looking at. And besides, if I flip that now, if we look at this passage, that these don't live the way the non-believers live, the Apostle Paul says in verse 17, because they're darkened in their understanding, futile in thinking, separated from God, and so on and so on and so on. If you stop and think about that, is that how you would describe non-Christians? Or is that a pretty extreme way of defining them? I know many unbelievers who live for a purpose, who are very benevolent towards others. They give sometimes sacrificially and generously. Bill Gates, for instance. I know non-Christians who are given themselves to medical research or other areas like politics or education or works of charity. They're all not following Jesus, but they're positive and they're helpful people. Do you know any of them? So how do we align perhaps our definition and our understanding, our experience of what non-followers of Jesus are like with this passage. Because many non-Christians, particularly in Australia, particularly in our probably culture, particularly in our network of things, they seem to be decent moral people. They seem to be faithful in their marriages. Not all, but many of them are. They love their kids. They're responsible at work. They're good neighbours. They're friendly. They're helpful. They're kind. They're polite. Well, how do you explain that? How can they be so nice and not follow Jesus? Well, there are three answers. Number one, God's common grace. God is at work even in the hearts and lives of those who do not follow the Lord Jesus. God's grace, his common grace, is common universally to all people and it's holding back the growth of sin. He's restraining it in the world, the Bible teaches it's not to say that they are not tainted by sin in every aspect of their life, but rather they're not giving full expression to it, partly because God is holding them back. That's one of the reasons. Another way to understand this passage is the way we look at non-Christian people, decent, nice, helpful, kind, is really us understanding them in terms of their outward behaviour. This passage is describing them from God's perspective and it's internal. And God looks on the heart. So while they may act nicely and do nice things and good things, which is commendable, at the root of it, at the heart of it, is something which is not right. It's faulty thinking. And in fact, the words the Apostle Paul talks about is that they are alienated from God and they are futile in their thinking. Meaning, the whole thinking process for them is based upon this life, here and now. They have no concern about the next life, heaven or hell or judgment day or anything like that. They're not concerned about having God in their life. They're separated from him, alienated from him. But they are concerned about doing good things in this life. They live for the here and now. That's what it means by the futility of their thinking. That's they live, they help, they die, and then what? Well, it's futile. That's silliness. They need to be preparing for what is coming and its judgment. And the Apostle Paul is saying, don't live like that. Don't live the way that they think, but rather incorporate God into your thinking. 
remembering that God looks on the heart, not just the outward behaviour. He sees both, but he particularly sees the motives and the intentions. Third answer, God's common grace. God looks on the heart and sees the reality. Third thing, we probably need to be careful how we see ourselves because if we tend to see unbelievers as nice and kind and moral and good, we probably have the same self-view of ourselves. That we think we are good and kind and nice and moral. And that's a clue that our thinking can be not fully biblical at that point, that we need to be aware of what we are like. So, and as we see ourselves as we are, then as mature followers and maturing followers of the Lord Jesus, our attitude will not be, how could that person do such a terrible thing? But rather the attitude will be, but for the grace of God, there go I. That I am capable in my fallenness of being as bad as him. The difference between me and a murderer is he had opportunity and I haven't taken mine. But between, in terms of sinfulness, just as tainted, just as affected, but forgiven because of Jesus. Whereas for the non-Christian, it's not forgiven and not wanting to be forgiven. Does that make sense? How would you counsel someone who claimed to be a follower of the Lord Jesus and yet was living as verse 19 describes? What would you say to them? They're futile in their thinking. They're living for this life only. They're living their life and excluded from God. They're not incorporating God into their life. What would you say to them? That's a question worth thinking about and pondering. What biblical goals do you need to have in place? Do you need to be pursuing so that you're doing what the Apostle Paul says here, that you're putting off the old, the old way of thinking, the old way of behaving, and you're putting on the new way, that I am now factoring in that God is real and that he is in my life and that he has a way for me to live. Christianity is not simply uh, self-improvement, of me getting rid of that and me adding this on to my life. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity is about a personal relationship with the living God. I know him and he, in fact, has caused me to be born again. He's changed me. An unbeliever over here cannot do righteousness. They can do outwardly moral and good things, but from the heart are not capable of performing righteous holy deeds before God. Not capable, biblically speaking. But over here now, we have been born again. We have been transformed. We have a new power within. We have a new nature, his nature. This nature, the old nature is instinctively sinful. This nature is instinctively holy. It's instinctively that. And what we need to do is to allow that nature to grow, to feed it, to nurture it, so that we become more like the Lord Jesus. And it's the Lord Jesus, in fact, who alone can bring about this change. It's not self-improvement. That's what the Apostle Paul goes on to say, verses 20 to 24. He says, you did not, however, come to know Christ that way. You used to live like that, but you've met Jesus. Surely you've heard of him, you were taught in him, according with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life, put that off. Be renewed and put on the new self, created to be like God in righteousness and in holiness. Jesus is the one who makes all the difference. He is key and central to transformation and to change. That's why, for those of you who are regulars here, then you've seen the diagram before. 
but the mission of our church is to uh, work with God in transforming people into passionate followers of Jesus. To work with God. Because God is at work in the world. He's holding back sin. But he's also convicting people of sin and giving them an awareness of judgment and drawing them to himself. God is at work. And there are people on this side of the cross, if this is the cross is where the pulpit is, on this side of the cross there are people here and here. These people over here are like not interested at all. They're cold, hard, separated from God and not even concerned about their future destiny. That's a bit like where this, the Apostle Paul is talking about. People can be like that. Then there are people whom God has been working in who have moved from that. They're not yet followers of Jesus, but they're here. They're open. They're sensitive. They have questions. They have a concern. And they're wondering, is there a God? And if there is, is there life after death? And if there is, how do you know? And is the Bible true? And they have those sorts of questions. And they're in the process of learning more about Jesus until they come to the point of the cross where a person is converted and changed, born again. The old nature is forgiven and a new nature is imparted. There's a new empowering within. God does that. And that which begins that process, that conversion event, continues to being a new believer, to being a growing believer, to being a maturing believer. And it's this process of moving this way, of growing like the Lord Jesus. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about. You have come to know Jesus. Move on. How do we move on? Well, he outlines for us in this passage. Verse 25, he says, therefore, and he gives half a dozen or more examples. And it's, you could do a sermon on each one of these. And I have about five minutes, so you'll get a minute. No, you'll get a bit more on each of these. Therefore, each of you must put off firstly falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbour. Why? Because we are all members of one another. In this process, the Apostle Paul will give us, stop that, start this, and here is the reason why. Stop that, start this, here is the reason why. In this one, it's put off falsehood, do this, speak truthfully to one another. Why? Because we are members of one another. Um, Truthfulness is vital in the life of the body. Imagine physically... If your body was not communicating truthfully to itself, you put your hand on a hot stove, for instance, and the nerves in your hand do not send the message or the true message that, gee, this is hot. So your brain is not getting the correct information, so your brain will not be saying to the muscles in the hand to move your hand. Instead, you'll suffer some sort of deep burn. It's important for us in the Christian community to put off falsehood and to speak the truth to one another. Why? Because we are members of one another. For the body to function properly, we have to be truth-tellers. God is a source of truth. Satan is a source of falsehood. God hates lying. How are you doing? As we go through these, you might want to think about, yeah, that's something I've got to work on. And then let's work out a strategy on that together. Um, And then hold each other accountable to it. So number one, put off falsehood. Speak the truth to one another. Secondly, be angry. Well, that's easy. We can all do that. <clears throat> but do not sin. Uh, bother. Can't do that. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry. I once asked my science teacher when I was a new Christian, I said, what happens if I get angry at five to six and at six o'clock? You know what he said? You have five minutes. I don't think it means that. I don't think it means literally 
don't be angry when the sun goes down. But I think it does goes close to meaning that. It means deal with it and deal with it immediately. Deal with it quickly. Otherwise, I'm going to go live at the North Pole because the sun doesn't go down up there for about six months. <laughs> the Bible says, as a new follower of the Lord Jesus, there will be times when you will get angry. There will be times when you should get angry. But in your anger, don't sin. That's the slippery slope. Don't let the sun go down while you are still angry and don't give the devil a foothold. What have we got to stop? Sinful anger. Why have we got to stop it? Because if we don't, we're giving the devil a foothold in our life. It's okay to be angry. But if you're going to be angry, you need to be angry, like God is, angry at sin. And let it motivate a response from you with proper constraints, with truth, with carefully chosen words, but let anger motivate you to deal with inappropriate behaviour. That's one of the things that is wrong in the world. But people do wrong things and people don't get angry at it. They don't respond to it. They let child abusers get away with things, for instance, like it's been in the news recently. And it's just like draw a line in the sand and say, enough is enough, cut it out. We should get angry at sinful behaviour. This is the problem. Because we are not fully mature yet, we're growing believers, we're moving that way, but here we can slip, we can mess up, we can get angry and the anger can turn to sin. So when you get angry, there's a good question. Is it righteous anger or is it unrighteous anger? If it's righteous anger, then you'll be able to name the sin. I'm angry at that. You'll be able to name the sin. If you can't name the sin, then the chances are that your anger is in fact an unrighteous anger and it's self-focused. I'm angry because whatever the reasons were or are. So when angry, determine, is it righteous or is it unrighteous? Is there a sin that I am needing to do with or is it just self, my own ego or reputation or whatever? You need to control the anger in order to express it. You need to respond, not react. If we do not deal with anger appropriately, biblically, then the passage says we give the devil a foothold. What does the devil do? What he wants to do is to bring division and discord and disharmony into the church body. Verses 1 to 16 of chapter 4 says that we are one people. Maintain that unity. What's the devil want to do? Divide us, split us, get us to be angry at each other and out of sorts with each other and not deal with it appropriately. So when you don't deal with your anger appropriately, you're actually letting, assisting the devil in achieving his goals to want to bring division into the church body. Thirdly, the Apostle Paul goes on and he says, he who has been stealing must steal no longer. Why? What should you do? Replace it with, but must work, doing something useful with his hands. And why? So that he may have something to share with those in need. Stop stealing, work hard, in order that you can not only earn money for yourself, but earn money to have resources to help those in need. Like we've been reminded this morning by Dr. Alfredo and Stanley. Work hard. Stop stealing. We don't steal, do we? They did a survey over 20 years, and they found generally in the population, there are 30% of people who will steal. And when the opportunity doesn't present itself, they'll create the opportunity they steal. 40% of the population, generally speaking, will steal only if they think, I won't get caught. 
And then there are 30% of the population who won't steal at all. They just won't steal. But, <clears throat> the survey went on to say, but they will be tempted that when they think, I don't, there's no chance of me getting caught, uh, this is something I need, it's small and uh, it's necessary, and anyway, the company that I'm stealing it from, they've got enough, they won't miss it. Even that 30% can be tempted. I wonder which one you're in. Well, the Apostle Paul is certainly very clear for us, no stealing, as followers of the Lord Jesus. Remember, back in the first century, many of these folks would have been slaves who were following the Lord Jesus now, and in church, those slaves were notorious for stealing things, taking things from the masters and from the household. Why? Because they weren't provided for greatly and they would just borrow things permanently. This verse implies great change, you see, from selfishness to service, from taking to actually working in order to give. Stop stealing, be honest. Then he goes on, and we should take a few minutes on this one and time's going. But verses 29, in fact, the theme running through all of this is don't let any unwholesome words or unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. I thought about that. Don't let any unwholesome words come out of your mouth. It almost implies you're going to think them, but don't say them. There is that difference. It would be good to not think them. But if you do think them, don't express them. That's what the Apostle Paul says. No unwholesome words to come out of your mouth, but only words that are helpful for building others up according to their needs and that may benefit those who hear. goes on to talk about not grieving the Spirit of God. Just like you can tell where somebody comes from by their accent. Who sells fush and chops? See, you can tell. So you can tell a Christian by the way they speak, the words that come out of their mouth, the transformed words. How are you doing with this one? There is a difference the way believers speak to the way unbelievers speak, generally speaking. You know, the Eskimos have 27 words for snow because it's part of their culture, part of their environment, part of their... It's necessary for them to make all these... 27 different words to describe different sorts of snow and ice. So too in English, we have an abundance of words to talk about and to distinguish our speech. It seems to be something that permeates our society. I'm going to give you a list of 12 different categories. I'm not asking you to learn them or memorise them, but I am asking you to listen and say, hey, that one, I need to work on that one, or no, that one, or those two, and write it down. Uh, if you've got all 12, you better come and see me afterwards. Uh, here are the 12. Um, just pick one, write it down, and then we'll pray And you, at the end of the service and ask God, Lord, can you help me on these unwholesome words coming out of my mouth? Because that's not your will and intention for us. Um, <clears throat> and many of you, on many of these, will go, no, not an issue, not an issue, not an issue, not an issue. Oh, that's an issue. So most of them, I would assume, you're not going to be doing. But we're all fallen, flawed creatures. Um, Push the pause button. I hope I was clear way back at the beginning when I spoke about Christians don't smoke, don't drink, don't dance, don't get tattoos, don't this. You understand I don't believe that, don't you? If you've got a tattoo, then God bless you. <laughs> if you smoke, well, that's your choice. It's not good for your health and so on. I could go through all of those things. Those things don't define us. Is that clear? All right. Thank you. Uh, number one, I'll go quickly. 
Here they are, name-calling, put-downs, insults. That's number one. Do you do that? Let no unwholesome words. Not, this is, it's borderline, isn't it? What do you do with humour, where humour is putting down? Well, put yourself down. Don't be very aware of putting another person down. So that's number one category. If you do that, um, then think about it. Uh, how to be a better follower of Jesus in the way you speak. Number two, inaccurately labelling people, putting people in boxes. Now I've got you figured out and you put a label on them and you, you treat them accordingly. Number three, sarcasm, ridicule and mockery. It's another conversation, but sarcasm is different to facetiousness. Facetiousness is humour, sarcasm is humour with an intent to hurt. That's sarcasm. Number four, blaming others or exaggerated attacks, like using words like always and never. You always do that, so it's an exaggeration. That's an unwholesome word. Number five, grumbling, complaining. Number whatever I'm up to, six, destructive criticism, where it's not helpful criticism, it's attacking, it's destructive. It hasn't got the intention to help or to heal, but the intention is to hurt, to harm. Destructive criticism. Number seven, angry words that includes threats or revenge or intimidation or that is spoken for the intent to control. Angry words. Next, arguments and quarrelling. That you're an argumentative person and you argue because you just like to win or you get into quarrels. Is that coming out of your mouth? Uh, next, what about deceptions and lies? Well, we spoke about that before. None of that. Speak the truth. Put aside falsehood. Number 10, gossip and slander. Spreading partial truths with a mixture of falsehood with the intent to make the other person look bad or even under the excuse of, please pray about that. Gossip and slander. Uh, next one, number 11, profanity, blasphemy. Um, using God's name in vain and inappropriately. And last one is swearing or coarse jokes, using filthy words that are designed to offend or hurt or, or whatever. That's probably more than enough. And I wonder if there are some of those for you to be working on. Um, what do you do if it is the case? Well, it all starts in the mind. If you read through this passage, it's to think this way. Think before you speak is certainly true. So if it's first in your thoughts to speak wholesome words, then think it and then out of the overflow of your mind and heart will flow those positive, encouraging, affirming words. So be thoughtful, be godly in your thinking. Don't entertain ungodly thoughts, arrest them and be encouraging and grateful in your mind and express that to the people. Proverbs 18 verse 21 certainly says is very true. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life. And then the Apostle Paul takes rapid-fire succession and he picks five things. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, um, <clears throat> and along with every form of malice. That's a bit like a catch-all. Just get rid of it in your life. And instead, be kind, be tender-hearted, compassionate, and be forgiving, just as God in Christ has been for you. Put away falsehood. Speak the truth. Put away sinful anger. Otherwise, you give the devil a foothold. Put away stealing, work and give. Put away corrupt words, unwholesome words. Instead, use words that are going to build up 
encourage, establish. Put aside all those things and be kind, tender-hearted and forgiving. It all begins with knowing the Lord Jesus. Putting off the old clothes. Putting on the new clothes. Let me finish with this. <clears throat> Time has gone. An old Negro preacher once said, I ain't what I want to be. And I ain't what I'm going to be. And praise God, I ain't what I used to be. We're in a process of change, of being transformed. It's a journey. So pick some of those things for this week and intentionally, with God's help, prayerfully, work on them. And become a passionate follower of the Lord Jesus. Let me, I think we'll just close in prayer. Spence, let's do that. Let's stand together. We'll close in prayer. <clears throat> Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of your word, the Bible. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, the one who is the dividing point, not only of time, of history, but even of our lives. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that by your death, you have dealt with our sin and that you have imparted to us new life. Help that new life to be manifest in us and through us. Lord, by your spirit this week, continue to prompt us, remind us of the areas we've got to lift our socks on, where we have to be working. We know that you are kind and tender-hearted and forgiving. Help us to reflect your character to others as well. And Lord, we pray that you will help us as a church to be united and to be pure, holy, like the Lord Jesus. To that end, Lord, we ask for your assistance. And I pray for your blessing to be upon us, upon these people. May you give us your grace, your mercy and your peace in the days of this week. And until we meet again, Lord Jesus, your will be done. Everybody said? Please be seated. You can join us for morning tea. And if you would like prayer for anything this morning, if you've got a need in your heart, your life, you want to talk about it, then we invite you to come forward and there'll be somebody here to pray for us. Thank you. Don't forget to visit the table.